Hello humans, this is The Bizzle, also known as Jesse B, Jay Brizza, and welcome to Bizzlecast episode 21. Um, this Bizzlecast interview is supposed to come out a long time ago. It's with my buddy Adam Dietz. We went to camp together back in the day as high schoolers in the late 90s, and I interviewed him a, a bunch of weeks ago, and I didn't realize till later that the sound was just not just not there, which is too bad because we had some hilarious conversations about going to co-ed sleepaway camp when you are in high school um, and the many advantages that presents to the average sixteen-year-old boy. But even though I tease it again in this podcast. I decided not to connect it because this one flows so well. I like that I finally, you know, got an efficient podcast in. It's not too long. Hopefully, you guys can listen to the whole thing or, or at least a lot of it. But I'll probably release that as a standalone quickie later because the discussion of camp and working in the kitchen and just, you know, you, you can use your imaginations. We don't go into such great detail, but uh, it's fun to reminisce and talk about. But here, we are talking about music. We're talking about Adam's music, which is great. And I will play a clip at the end of the podcast, an unreleased uh, version of, of a song that's coming out on his new album. So we are talking about his music, and we are talking about the history of music, specifically Led Zeppelin and Radiohead and Nirvana, Soundgarden, Wilco, go all over the place, talk about best albums. Is it usually the first, the second, or the third? We have a lot of theories about it. So you can consider that an intro to the history of rock, uh, which should be mandatory in college, is not for some reason. But one of the fun things that come out of our first podcast, where I didn't really know where it was going, because even though we chatted online a bit over the years, we really didn't have like a, a full-on conversation for a while. I knew that we shared some interests, and he liked the Bizzlecast and wanted to be on. I was pumped to have him on. And we ended up talking about Game of Thrones and just the sad state of television in general, and... I and he consciously revisit that conversation here now that season five is over. I'm just as disgusted as always. I would be more disgusted, but, you know, I'm at maximum disgust with that show combined with, you know, premium level apathy. It's a fun combination when when you're talking about it. So we have a lot of fun with that. But we also talk about Breaking Bad and, and True Detective and some other good stuff that is going on. And finally, uh, we dissect San Francisco a little bit. I've always liked visiting, and I have a lot of friends that live there and love it. But, you know, I know for non-native West Coasters, San Francisco's, um, you know, is not always the paradise it's, uh, it's portrayed necessarily. He loves living there. Like I said, I love visiting it. But, you know, as an indie musician, I think he yearns. Um, for, you know, a little bit of an older time in a place like San Francisco, which would be the absolute place to be as a, you know, a rising musician. We really cover the gamut, and you're going to enjoy this one a lot. Just Adam's such an interesting guy, great perspective, super smart, super musical. And so, you know, hopefully I'll release the camp stuff and maybe some other parts of the other interview later, but this one flows great, and I hope you enjoy it. Don't forget to check us out on iTunes, subscribe on your podcast apps, and uh, enjoy the show. All right, Bizzlecast listeners, I am here with old friend slash musician slash all-around awesome guy, Adam Dietz. Uh, we went to camp together in the late 90s, and even though I'm from Pennsylvania and he's from Colorado, 
it was a national, really an international camp. Um, and we met there when we were in high school and uh, bonded over music and lots of other things. We've kind of stayed in touch over the years, especially the last few years, through Facebook. And, uh, you know, Deeds told me that he was digging the Bizzlecast and he'd like to come on and I'm pumped to have him on. So, Adam, welcome to the Bizzlecast. Thank you, Jesse. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, the, the honor is all mine, sir. And uh, so we're going to talk about a bunch of stuff. We have some, some fun camp stuff, which, you know, we might get to later. Uh, but Adam is a musician. He was you know, a really good musician when I met him in the late 90s when we were in camp. And I'm sure is even, you know, greater today. So Adam, if you would, uh, why don't you give us just a little background on, on sort of your, your musical history and then, you know, use that as a lead-in to talk about the third album um, of yours that you are recording soon. Have you started recording it? Recording soon? Um, we will start recording the first cut on Tuesday. Well, actually, it's the second cut. I did do a little recording at Rift Time Studios. There's a, a plug for these guys in San Mateo. And, um, yeah, they, they, we did a video shoot of just me playing guitar. And it's pretty cool. Um, and we're going to do some more recording there also, but we'll probably do some remixes of older stuff, so not new content. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question more directly, um, I am going to lay down one track that will be on the new album um, Tuesday with my friend Ethan Lee, who's going to be on steel pedal guitar, and Mel Russo of one of my favorite bands here called Uncle, and she'll be doing accompanying mm-hmm. vocals. And we'll all be playing at El Rio in San Francisco on September 3rd, this Thursday. Yeah, lots of lots of fun musical stuff happening. So when we met, you were a very good guitar player um, and singer. Uh, so you know, how did you go from sort of just being a, a, you know a really good musician in high school to the point where you're you're making your third album? Were there gaps in the middle? Have you been playing continuously over the last you know fifteen years or so? Just kind of lead us in and sort of a, a, a you know a short musical history of Adam Dietz and how you got to this point. Wow, well, thank you for the uh, compliment. I am a competent guitar player. I'd never say I'm a great guitar player, but um, which is kind of how, to answer your question, is like, yes, yes, and yes. Were there breaks? Yes. Were there ongoing musical endeavors? Yes. Um, I'd say a lot of storming and through the angst of the 20s came with being a musician. And how did I get to a third album? It's an interesting process. I would say one of, one of the ways to do it is, you know, people say how the music industry is dying or it's dead. And ways it is for a musician to like actually like record a CD and you know make money and that that thing is really difficult. But I think the whole do-it-yourself musician project and being able to post music online and share it online and mm-hmm. get audience online or even just to like put it somewhere mm-hmm. is much easier. And that you can record in your house with a computer and that seems more accessible to me than maybe it would have been ten years ago. So I think that that definitely has contributed to being able to like say, yeah, I'm working on a third album, which is kind of crazy. But I would say by and large, the, the, what led me to here is to keep playing. I would say, keep playing and keep playing. I think when I talk about songwriting, you can't, for me, you can't schedule it in your planner. It's just something you got to keep playing and an idea might come your way. Mm-hmm. And I would say my swoon of musical um, creation came while I was in grad school and that's because, you know, I didn't have a fixed schedule, so I could kind of be writing a paper or potentially studying. And 
and then have an idea, and I'm like, oh shit, you know, I, I don't care about this paper. I'll just pick up my guitar and play and do that. To to play new music is to write, to write, to write. I mean, to keep playing and playing and playing. And graduate school was really conducive to that because I didn't have to. Um, I don't know, I'd have like a set job to go to, so I could be writing a paper and just being in the moment right. of where I was, and then just have an idea and go run with it. And I think some people will ask me how I write songs, and do the lyrics come first, or does the music come first? And the answer is yes. It just depends. You know. Mm -hmm. On my last album, I, I had two songs uh, that I came up with just walking my dog, and you know, so you know, I think there's uh, probably like a TED talk or um, intellectual exploration that like exercise or moving around is conducive to brain activity and so i mean who knows you know it's just you never know when an idea comes your way but for all the budding songwriters out there my biggest advice is don't force it just give yourself time and keep at it don't force it and you never know what will come your way so what is your kind of process for writing do you write music first do you write lyrics first does it come all together how does that work yes yes and yes i mean it just depends sometimes like a very clear idea, both musically and lyrically, will come together. I'd say like what usually happens is there's a music idea, like a chord progression that I'm working with, and I'll kind of sing some lines, and then like I'll like, ooh, I like that line, like I like that line a lot, and then I'll run with that. And I'd say that's kind of the grounding feature, and that that will lead to an idea. So for example, my most recent song I wrote, Lady Dupree or Cowgirl Dupree, I'm not sure what to call it yet, I think I, I was, I had the music first, and then I had this line, lonely and free, and I was like, ooh, I like that. And that led to rhyming. I think my first line after that was just like me, but then that felt a little too depressing. And then I, I said, Lady Dupree, I don't know how that came up. And then I had this image of this lady singer in some divey bar. Actually, it, it reminded me of True Detective this season. Um, here's a spoiler, but there's, I don't know her name, it's definitely a famous musician, but she's... In this uh, bar and wherever they are in California, on the edge of purgatory, mm -hmm. and she's just playing guitar by herself, and that's kind of the image I have of the song, and it turned into a song about having a crush on a performer. And you and I spoke about I have a crush on a certain lady performer yeah. out there in the world, and so I kind of ran with like that being a fun idea of like having the song being almost like a like a love song or like a a song about a crush of a performer. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it all started with a, a chord progression and one line. And then, yeah, so like, I think, so I'll write stuff down. Like I'll sometimes put it, you know, I'll have like a journal or like a notebook and I'll write down the lines or I'll even put it on like a, uh, what is it called? A Google document. And if I'm supposed to be working, like maybe I'll work a little bit, but then I'll like work with a line or, or two. Mm -hmm. And, and just, and again, like, it's still this, it's always, I would say, like, the biggest process or the biggest thing that I do is just to keep playing. And so, like, I'll play and play, and a different idea might come then. And so, like, there'll be different phases of construction of a song. And even with the same song, Lady Dupree, like, I had an idea of changing a line just the other day, like, where, you know, we're going to go to record on Tuesday, and I still don't know what we're going to do. You know, I think we're going to stick to the original line, but I had an idea for a different one, and maybe we'll do it. You know, it's... it's it's always an evolving creative process, which is really fun about songwriting. And I think, you know, I'm going to be going back down to another studio to do older content, but like remixes. And I think that's cool about songs that they evolve. And you and I have spoken also about how, like when you go to see a show, you're expecting to hear the artist play a song the way you heard it on the record. Or are you? And like maybe the artist 
wants to get sick and tired of that and or maybe the song changes or it evolves for them or it grows and I really like hearing a song at a concert that's not the way it sounds on an album and it's it's um, it's, it's a different interpretation or it's, it's, it's evolved into something different that's pretty cool so you know you and I are both historians of rock um, in our previous conversation we talked a lot about this and we might get back into it but you know when you trek the greatest musicians, you know, from the Beatles up until, you know, <laughs> as we kind of agreed, the sort of early mid nineties, which wasn't the death of rock, but was a less great rock movement. Of course, we're biased because that's when we were, you know, adolescents and that's when you fall in love with this stuff. But in, regardless of the age, regardless of the era, I, my theory is that I can kind of support this for some bands, a lot of bands, is that the second album is the most difficult because the first album is stuff that you've just been building up in your head for so long, the excitement of it, the novelty of it, especially if the first album is successful, not necessarily, you know, financially successful, but from a creative standpoint is successful and people like it. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's not that it just puts pressure on to follow it up with something as good or better, but that you need to come up with wholly new material um, in, in a relatively short amount of time. Did you find this to be the case? And sort of as a tack on to that, was any sort of challenges that you might have had with the second album instructive to how you're approaching the third album? Great question. You know, I, I would have assumed that the second album was harder to write, but it wasn't actually. It was, it was easier in so much, I think part of it is because like, do I actually have an audience? <laughs> I don't really do. So there's not like the pressure of like, you know, financial or even like a expectation of like an audience like wanting it to sound like something or to, to have like a carry through and so that's I guess one advantage is that I just did what I wanted to and for whatever reason like I actually I like my second album better I think it's a little bit more coherent there might not be like the strength of like maybe a single or two like I think there might be stronger songwriting on the first album like where I'd say like maybe one song is like a five like that's just like an amazing song like right. I don't know if I have that on the second one but I think overall it's a more coherent thing and I think I don't know like it just I think it's it's something where I guess I didn't force it and I didn't I just kind of ran with it and more maybe like I agree with you at the first album like you've had ideas for a long time right and maybe there's like kind of a certain it, it might have been especially for me like I mean, I've been working on some content for like 15 20 years right mm -hmm. and so you know and then some of it's new and so there's a big difference between writing a song as a you know, 16 year old versus like a 30 year old and so, you know, do those songs, like, do they match on an album, whereas the second album was almost exclusively all new content. Um, right. Though not entirely. So that there might be more coherency there. Right. But for the third album, yeah, great question. So now, with the third album, this is probably a time when I don't have co the content fleshed out yet, or fleshed out. I never know the difference there. Right. Um, <laughs> speaking of fleshing, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, um, yeah, so, so this time I don't necessarily have the content right. um, done, but I have interest, you know, from a friend that wants to produce an album, uh -huh. I have some content to go for a third album, and so, yeah, now it's very much, it could be very open-ended, and I, I don't feel pressure, like, I feel like, hmm, it could be really exciting. I don't feel the same momentum I did for the second one, like, one where, like, I have a lot of content, like, let's go, let's get this done. Right. But it could be really exciting, like, I'm actually really curious what's going to happen here um, with the third right. album. It could go a lot of different directions.
Right. I, you know, I have a number of addendums based on what you're saying um, to, to my previous, you know, statement or theory. You know, one is, you know, you're, you're older, um, you know, more mature than when a lot of rock bands get started and start recording. Second, I'm not saying you're not a superstar, but, you know, let's be honest. If you sell a million copies of your first album, it does put a lot of pressure on you with the follow-up. But I guess really what I meant to say was not the the actual first album, but the first breakthrough. Hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I I think a classic example of this is Led Zeppelin. Um, And I think... You know, I mean, it, you know, if you're into sort of historicizing with me a little bit about rock and roll, which is, yes, Led Zeppelin's first album was amazing, but it really was the second that put them at the top because of Heartbreaker and songs like that. Um, and the first album was a little rough production-wise. I love that. But the second was really right. the, fir- the first super professional. And I think the the biggest disagreement among Led Zeppelin fans is the extent to which you like or don't like the third album. Personally... Oh, I love the third album. Yeah. I love I, the third album. I love the third album. And, you know, it might be my favorite album. Dude. But... Me too, man. I love... That. I think it's my yeah. favorite album now, too. Yeah. It, it, but, but it's, you know, it, it quote-unquote fell into the trap, which was not a trap, and they actually did the smart thing, which was not to try and replicate their previous albums, but to develop a whole new sound and go in wholly new yeah. directions to the point yeah. where you have the immigrant song, you know, which is arguably their, their hardest rock song other than maybe, um, what's it called? That battle, battle of Achilles. The, uh, it's on one of their later albums. I think it's called battle of Achilles, you know, about, uh, it's about Troy. So you the immigrant song, but then you have, you know, all these bluesy tracks since I've been loving you might be my favorite Led Zeppelin song. Um, and so, you know, they, this great mix of going harder than they'd ever gone before, but also going more folksy and bluesy. I thought it worked great. I think that's a case of them realizing that they needed to go in a different directions, but you know, a lot of, you know, Led Zeppelin fans out there don't love the third album. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts about this. I mean, I, I think that's my favorite album. And I think, I think my thought would be like, again, like how much, like preconceived like control that you have over an album like you you sit down and like i want to sound like this or like you're kind of grooving out it's like oh this sounds cool like we're right we're creating like and you're influenced by like what you hear and like what you're exposed to and like people change and we all change and like you know i think so you know i don't know i don't know how much is by design like i think i think of a radio head right and think of them for sure being like one of my favorite bands ever and like just loving them and remember being in college and when Kid A came out, I was, you know, ready to buy it the first day it came out. And when it did, I'm like, what the hell is this? Like, what? Like, oh my God. Like I was blown away. I was like, what is this? Like, I hated it. I really hated it. I See, like, that's interesting. I, like I did not like it. Yeah. But now that I've listened to it a hundred times and it's a, an amazing album. Like it's amazing. And I think... You know, and I think I, there's stories about that album and like what it is and what it's supposed to be a reaction to, and I don't want to get into that. But I think you know, it's to me that was like you know they did what they did, and it's excellent. And now I've really come to appreciate it, and I really like it. That's that's so funny that you mentioned that album in particular because 
Um, just for some personal historical context for the listeners out there. So, you know, Adam and I went to camp together for the couple of years leading up to college. And I took a year off to do a, a year in Israel program that was directly related to the camp that we went to. It's a little complicated. But anyways, in 2000, 2001, you were a freshman in college and I was in Israel parting my ass off and thinking I was an adult. But what's so crazy is, you know, now that I'm, you know, a mega radio head super fan, I think in retrospect, OK Computer is still my favorite album, but Kid A was the album that got me into them. For whatever reason... Hmm. Mm-hmm. I, for whatever reason, it, during high school, when OK Computer came out, I, I just I didn't connect with it. Um, I think it took me a while to get used to Tom York's voice. I think that was the big mm-hmm. step for me because mm-hmm. it's so untraditional for a rock band, and they're very untraditional all around. But within, I think it was in the first week of Israel, and, and there were a lot of British people on the program, not in my group specifically, but on the program, uh, some of whom I had known from camp, some of whom were new friends, and Kid A had just come out. And, uh, you know, back then I still had a mini disc player. Uh, side note, I love mini discs. They never were a thing. I wish they were a thing. It's such a brilliant concept, but even in those early days, I, I was able to use an, you know, an auxiliary cord to record CDs to blank mini discs. And that was one of eight to 10 albums that I listened to over and over and over again in Israel. And, you know, what's even crazier is, you know, OK Computer was more in line with my notions of rock, but there was something about that first track on Kid A and that, that, that really creepy synth in the beginning uh, that was both disturbing but relaxing. Like, I, I would go to bed mm-hmm. listening to that album. I shit you not. It's hard sure. to explain. Yeah, sure. But I, I, I would... I yeah, and, and so... It, it, and But, you know, the, the point I'm really trying to make here is I wasn't into electronic music then, you know? It, like, for example, if you gave me that album now and I do nothing around, about Radiohead, I would immediately be into it because I'm much more into electronic stuff now. At the time, I, I really didn't know much about electronic stuff. And so, you know, it just goes to show you that songwriting is everything. I think we can at least agree on that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have a, I have a quick, uh, quick parallel for you real quick. Yeah. Um, um, so I remember really first listening to OK Computer and, like, really enjoying it on my way to tell you who to in the back of my grandparents' car. I listened to it on a disc man. Nice. And so that, that ties it all in together right there, my man. So, nice. um, what is what what what's your you know current favorite Radiohead album? Oh, I mean, it's always going to be the Benz or OK Computer, but I think the Benz for me is just that changed the way I I listen to music. Like that was I've never heard that much sound from guitars, and I was like, oh my god, like these guys just fucking rock. Like they're so awesome, and like so much noise, like so much cool stuff happening, and like just. Just like cutting edge, just like wow. Like Johnny Greenwood is like my hero. Like the coolest sound. Right. No offense to Wesley Wu who plays lead guitar in my band, like awesome, but <laughs> I mean Johnny Greenwood to me is like the ideal lead guitar player. Just like pushes the envelope, like just like wow. Like, well not a, not to cool mention stuff. Not to mention he's become one of the great soundtrack composers in mm-hmm. Hollywood. I mean you know his soundtrack for There Will Be Blood is so amazing. I don't know how he comes up with this shit, 
So it's interesting about the bends. I have other friends who say the same thing. You know, for me, OK Computer is where it all came together. So let me put it this way, and then maybe we'll move on to some other bands, other rock stuff. If you didn't know Radiohead, but you had your current musical sensibility in 2015, and someone gave you the entire discography, do you still think the bends would be your favorite? I agree with you that OK Computer is where it all comes together. I think OK Computer is a better album. But I, but I mean, talking about songwriting, for me, The Benz is like a complete album about a breakup. It's like the breakup album. Like, almost every song I would interpret is about a breakup. Right. Not every song, but many of them. And I love that. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it depends. Like, for me, like, I'm a hopeless romantic, and I love that. I love that The Benz is like a breakup album, or at least it is for me. Yeah, I would say so. I would say probably I think OK Computer is the most interesting best album like i don't like their most recent stuff like, no people me talk neither. about in rainbows and i'm like in rainbows no offense radiohead if you guys are ever listening to this like i don't think it's a good album i think it's fine like i think it's good it's not bad it's radiohead i mean it's definitely good but it's like it's not to me it's not interesting it's very it's very static to me it's not dynamic where i think other albums are more dynamic of theirs there i totally agree with you I, there's a couple tracks from in rainbows that I always have on my iPod, but I never listen to the full album. And what's crazy is, so you have the bends, and that which launched everything, as you pointed out, was they, was sort of the the beginning of the end already of that particular sound, but especially lyrically. So you know, I would say the big four post the bends obviously were the four that came after. You had OK Computer, where they started hinting some electronic stuff. And then you have Kid A and Amnesiac, which are really two, it's really a double album that they release separately, um, where it's very heavy electronic. And then Hail to the Thief, which for me was their last great album, where it's just a perfect merging. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's like with Bjork. I mean, when you master a certain sound or set of sounds, you when you're that creative and brilliant, you almost have to go more experimental. And so I don't hold it against them, but I agree with you. It's way overrated. But, you know, just the fact that they're still selling a lot of albums, even though it's getting very abstract, again, like Bjork, I really appreciate that that audience is out there. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, besides Radiohead, who, what, what mega rock band is really out there that you know that formed within the last twenty years that's still killing it? I, I don't know any. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I don't know if, that they're in the same sphere, but I, I kind of think of them as the American Radiohead as Wilco, and right. I'm, I was late to Wilco. Um, but when I got Wilco, I loved it. I was like, this is wonderful. And like, I think Tweedy is an exceptional songwriter. And, you know, I think some of their early canon is, is awesome. It's different. Um, you know, there's definitely an evolution from the all country to like rock and roll. And, right. You know, like loud rock and roll, like this stuff fucking rocks and seeing them live. They're wonderful, like wonderful, wonderful band. Wilco, um, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And... They just came out with a new album, which I didn't even realize, and it's called Star Wars, and it's loud. Like, it's loud, it's kind of noisy, in a good way, I mean that, in a good way. I don't think it's an exceptionally strong album, but the album before it, The Whole Love, is awesome. I think it's a great album. It's probably one of the best albums I've heard in the past, you know, five years, hmm. which is interesting because I think the album before it was not that good, and the album before it, that was okay. Where I would say, like, the album, like, A Ghost is Born, I think, is exceptional. I think that's, like, top-notch. And same with, like, Yankee Hotel, Foxtrot, like, sure. great albums. And so there's, like, kind of, like, that's a 10, 15-year period. And, like, 
I was really impressed by the whole love. I was like, this is awesome. Like, what mm -hmm. a great album. And just to, like, to be able to still do that, like, years later, where I would, again, not to beat up on Radiohead, like, they're the, the best. Like, who, who am I to, like, critique? And I think a lot of people, it's, I don't want to ever get into that, that phase, because, like, you know, how do you possibly keep writing stuff like that? But um, I think Wilco, like, pulled it off, or, like, you know, I think great albums, Yankee Hotel, Frog's Trot, Ghost is Born, and then 10 years later coming out with the whole love, like, wow, like, that's, that's impressive. I think that's really awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess, you know, I mean, for me, it's like Radiohead and Pearl Jam. It's like the last connection to the 90s. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I... <laughs> Thing is, when you last this long and you keep putting out albums, eventually the quality is going to be mixed. But you know, once you get Radiohead's sound, even though I don't love In Rainbows and really don't like King of Limbs, if someone puts it on at like a party or just a hangout, I'm totally into it. I'd way rather listen to that than most shit. Um, Pearl Jam too. Yes. Th their albums. What's great about Pearl Jam is they haven't really had any great albums since the '90s, but there's always some good tracks on every album. Definitely. And, and, and then Definitely. when you see them live or hear their live stuff, and you hear them play it live, you're like, oh, okay, the song was way cooler than I thought. They, they, they're pretty restrained yeah. on the albums. They let it rip live. I wasn't particularly impressed with Radiohead's live show, but it might have just been the venue. I was really far back. I, I, I don't know if you've seen them live before. I have, and I got into a fight with my band about this. Um, <laughs> um, I think I think that I have seen Radiohead a number of times, and there's actually one Radiohead show I never saw that I still hate myself for. They were um, at Red Rocks, and mm. I think it was the summer of 2001. I was broke, like broke. I'd already, I'd already borrowed like a very small amount of money from my dad, but like I didn't feel comfortable asking for more to go see Radiohead at Red Rocks. And to this day, I'm just like, oh my God, like how did I not see that show? But right. um, anyway, I have seen Radiohead a number of times and it's always been like a good show. It kind of reminds me how I feel about In Rainbows. Like it's a good album. Like it's, it's fine. Like it's good. It's never been like, oh my God, that's the best show ever. And I think, I don't know if it's them or if it's the audience or both, but I feel like, you know, Radiohead, like everyone's like, oh my God, it's Radiohead. Like we're on our knees and bending and like, you know, gesticulating like, Right. Gosh, we we think you are the best, and they are. But like, I feel like it's not a fun show, and I feel like or Wilco's fun. Like Pearl Jam is fucking really fun. So like, fun, yeah. But Radiohead, I think it's like we're all taking ourselves so seriously, and I don't know if the band falls into that, but it's like yes. you look around at the fans, and like you know, and I'm I'm one of them, but it's like, oh my god, it's Radiohead. It's like you can't you can't smile or something. Like it's just like it's so you know. I want to have like Heath Ledger say like, why so serious? Like you yeah, know, it's rock and roll, dude. <laughs> I feel like if you saw Radiohead in 1994 or 95, like it would have been fucking rad, like, yeah. just super awesome. Right. It's it's almost like uh, I make the comparison. You know, ra Radiohead show. It's like seeing 12 Years a Slave in the theater. Like you got to do it, even though you know it's going to be painful. Whereas Pearl Jam is like going to see the Avengers. You know, it's like I think that's a great. I think that's a great great analogy. Although I do think Radiohead's enjoyable. Like it's still an enjoyable concert. It's oh yeah, more, it's yeah. more it's more ethereal, I would say. Right. Where it's like it's like seeing the symphony almost, you know. Right, um, right, right. But yeah, Pearl Jam's like seeing the Avengers. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so well executed. It's so fun. You could see them over and over again. Um, yeah. ra Radiohead, at least live, and certainly their newer albums, smaller doses. So. Uh, so I'm looking at your your webpage here. 
You mentioned Nirvana. I know some of these other bands. Just really quick about Red Rocks. You probably know about this, but uh, in the... Oh, God, when was it? In 83... U2 released an 8-track uh, live EP from Red Rocks called Under a Blood Red Sky. Oh, wow. H- highly recommended. Their oh, ver- I believe that. Their versions I believe of, that. Yeah, their versions of Gloria, I Will Follow, Sunday Bloody Sunday, New Year's Day, and some other tracks. So great. It's the best Sunday Bloody Sunday ever. Like Once you hear their live five-and-a-half-minute version where he goes on like a speech, like a political speech in the middle – I mean, it's so epic. Oh, yeah. He really, yeah. (laughs) You know, he's basically like, in case you don't know what this song is about, here's what it's about. Um, But but he does it in, you know, he's a a poet, and so he does it in a poetic way. It's fantastic. I I don't know if we said this last time, but I think we did, but I would say if I were older, I think U2 would be, like, my favorite band, like, I think. And I think whenever I read about Radiohead or read about the bands, like, there's always a reference to U2, like, always. Like, that's, oh, yeah. like, that's like the, that's kind of like the influence. I don't know that Radiohead would say that, but that's, I can always find that interesting. And yeah, dude, I mean, I don't like U2's album on my iPhone. I don't care for that album at all, but hey, well, what are you going to do? I think their last great album, or at least good album for me, was the one released, you know, your first year of college and when I was in Israel, all that you can't leave behind. Song, mm-hmm. Songwriting wise, very strong. But really, you know, between that album and Atomic Bomb in 04, Bono just lost his voice. And it's crazy because the first and only U2 concert I saw was the All That You Can't Leave Behind tour, which they called the Elevation Tour, and the Elevation single, of course, uh, from the album. But, you know, it, it just it happened. But my, I have what I call the four-album theory, which is that in order to be a truly great rock band, you have to have at least four great albums. Radiohead had, you know, five, I think we would, four or five we would agree upon. Um, you know, Zeppelin had six or seven. You know, U2, I mean, I could argue that their first ten albums are awesome. And their, their sound changed so much. But if you start with War in 83, Unforgettable Fire, Joshua Tree, Achtung Baby. Uh, yeah. I actually like Zeropa and Pop, which most people don't like. I like that they went a little bit more experimental personally. I actually love Pop. I, you know, that, that's the thing. Pop is what got me. Here's the thing. So the, the electronic experimentation that you two did on Pop prepped me a few years earlier without me realizing it for Kid A and Amnesiac by Radiohead. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I love that they tried to do a little bit of a Radiohead thing. You know, The Who is an interesting case. I love most of their albums, but there's at least four that people would agree upon. You know, I I don't know what you think about my theory, if there's any other bands you'd kind of throw in there. Obviously, The Beatles, you know, goes without saying. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. Like, I would say, I mean, are there four solid Pearl Jam albums? Yeah, I would say so. Are there four solid Nirvana albums? I don't know. They didn't have time. There, There would have been. Here's, here's, I had a, I had a Facebook post back when I was more active on the Book of Faces that the older I get, the more I think that In Utero is better than Nevermind. And I think I like In Utero better than Nevermind. Like, I think that... Wow. Yeah, I, I, I'll put it out there and I will defend it if, if needed. Like, I think the songwriting on In Utero is exceptional. Like, Nevermind is epic. I mean, Nevermind is, you know, it is what it is. But the songwriting on Utero is so interesting. It's so smart. Like, that's where I think you see, like, Kurt Cobain's, like, genius as a songwriter. Like, Nevermind is, like, the sound, right? Like, it's just like, whoa. Like, what is this sound? And there's amazing songwriting on that, too. Like, don't get me wrong. But I think in Utero, you're just like, whoa. Like, this guy is just brilliant. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think if you just look at the uh, the Seattle bands or whatever, the grunge bands, you know, late 80s to mid 90s, you know, I, I, it's true. Some some of the most underrated albums of these artists can be the best. I'm not sure I can agree with you in In Utero. I will say, though, the best songs in In Utero are easily as good as the best songs on Nevermind. I'll definitely give you that. When was the last time you listened to In Utero? I'm just curious. Um, I think I listened to it once a few months ago, but just hearing you talk about it, I'm definitely going to revisit it. I mean, I listen to it, like, probably once a week. <laughs> like, I listen to the album a lot. Like, it's really good. See, yeah, so that that band for me from that era is Soundgarden. My favorite, and I think musically best and most interesting album from that whole thing is Super Unknown by uh, Soundgarden. And what you know, what's great about it, and, and you might say this about In Utero, and you can say this about Nevermind and a lot, but what's great about about that Soundgarden album is that the really famous songs like Black Hole Sun aren't even among the best songs on the album. Most of the best songs. Other than Fell on Black Days, which is probably my favorite, you know, you know, rock song from that whole era, but a lot of that album is pretty experimental, pretty out there, totally rocks. But, you know, I mean, I think a comparison I can make is Super Unknown was their best album and most successful, but their final album, Down on the Upside, is very, very underrated. Um, Agreed. It, it's not as consistent, but the first seven or eight tracks are really phenomenal. And the fact that they go a little bit lighter, there's less you know, heavy production on it, I really appreciate. It's hard for me to do the comparative thing. So for me, Alice in Chains' best album by far is Jar of Flies, their acoustic album. Even though I like their harder stuff... And, uh, you know, like hardcore Alice in Chains people probably don't even like that album because it's too mellow. Uh, but that, that's just a haunting album. It's not even a full album. There's like, you know, it's an EP. Uh, and so, yeah, yeah it, it, it's tough. I mean, you know, I, I have friends who would say Pearl Jam's second album, uh, Versus, is better than the first. I don't agree with that, although in some ways it's more interesting looking back. And I love Vitology, which is very mixed among fans because of the experience. I think this is the Led Zeppelin three thing, right? I mean, look at it. In Utero was Nirvana's third album. Uh, you know, Led Zeppelin three, Pearl Jam third album, really out there, really interesting. I believe OK Computer was Radiohead's third album, right? Because you had Pablo Honey. That's correct. Yeah. That's so, correct. so, and this goes back to my second album theory. And Radiohead nailed it with the Benz. It, but it doesn't always work out that way. So you got the first album, which is just raw energy. The second album, which sort of launches you into fame or not. And then the third album, you sort of go a little bit more experimental. And so tying it back to you, do you see a similar progression from, from sort of a structural standpoint in your three album process? Or, or has it been more, not necessarily consistent, but uh, you know, not, not really conforming to that three act structure, if you will? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's it can go a lot of different ways. Like, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, what happens conceptually. Like, you know, it would be fun to do an album that's like a, you know, like a concept album or like just like where everything really ties together without forcing it and making it shitty. But um, that would be really fun to do that. And, you know, I don't know how much it's going to involve, you know, the band I'm in, um, you know, if, if a friend's producing it, like how much influence is there. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Like, it'll be really interesting. Like, I don't know what's going to happen with this band. Like, we're playing shows. Like, we're we're changing songs as we play them live, which is great. I love that. So, I don't know. You know, it'll be really interesting. But I think bringing new content, that's where it'll be interesting. And I think, I do feel a little bit like, 
I don't know how much new content I have yet. And so I don't know. And I'm a little worried that like maybe my best ideas have already happened, but you know, I hope that there's still some in there and you never know. Like, and I think it goes back to what I would say is that you just can't force it. And so I've got to let it happen as it happens. And just to kind of, to have, to just be that there is no pressure for me. Like I don't have like a fan base like clamoring for an album. So like I'm doing this cause it's fun and it's cool. And like, Hey, like why not? So just to let it happen as it evolves and we'll see, we'll see what happens. So when you get feedback from people, either of the album of your, uh, or of your shows, I'm talking about positive or constructive feedback. Mm -hmm. Um, does that influence you at all? Or you just kind of file it away and say, okay, that's cool, or that's interesting, and then I'm just going to do my thing? Mm, good question. And I'm not talking about, you know, like musician nerd talk about chord changes and yeah. stuff. I mean just people yeah. who you like or respect or who seem cool, who, who say certain things, you know? I would say I definitely hear it and I, I listen to it, but no, I actually don't give a shit. <laughs> What people say. I mean, sure. I, I, I do what I like and I do what... What I, what I do, though, is like I do like to really involve people. and I, I like to have it be collaborative. Like I'm really open to that. And so, sure. so I think... I think And I think the fan base or like listeners are absolutely involved with that. And so I guess I would say if, like there's, if there's a fan base involvement in creation, then like, yeah, I think that's really cool. Like, for example, um, on the first album I wrote a song and I, there was a song I wrote about the ocean and... Um, Superstorm Sandy, and I asked, I asked the internet, I asked Facebook, like, give me some ideas, give me some lines about the ocean. Like, sure. Tell me what you think of the ocean, and I used some of that, and that was really fun. You know, it was really fun to like, yep. and I think that's a really cool process. So, yeah, I don't know. I think. Well, let me, let, me, think, let me rephrase the question a little bit. Has it been the case that the stuff that you like the best has been the stuff that other people like the best, or, or do they, <laughs> or, or not so much? Um, I would say yes and no. Like my fa my favorite song, probably of mine. I don't think it's the best, but my favorite. It's it's a song called West Side. It's on the second album, Legends of the Pelican Man, and it's definitely the most out there. I think like it's it's like as close to like noise and like you know Sonic Youth, like Rage Against the Machine, like noise that I want my band to be able to make and like be loud and like out there. It's a political song. It's got a hook that I wrote. You know, definitely when I was playing a lot of jazz, it's absolutely in reference to West Side Story. It's kind of like similar. It reminds me of West Side Story. The bass player in my band hates that song. Like, we still haven't played it live. I want to. It's in a complicated time signature. I couldn't tell you which one it is. Probably like in a 6-4 or something like that. But um, I really like that song. But I definitely know that, that, that not everyone would like that song. And I'm okay with that. You know, I'm really okay with that. And sure. I, I felt like I tucked it in in a nice place on the album. Like I think we built built up to it, and it needed like a, it needed like a refrain afterwards. Like it needed to kind of like come down. Like that was almost like the climax. Like okay, that's it, and then let's and then like let's let's kind of relax and chill out and kind of calm down from like a very charged, high energy song. And so I definitely know not everyone likes that song, but some people do. Yeah, for me, that's like the song I've always wanted to record. That's the one I've always wanted to put down. And I've always been always a little bit tentative because I know it's like out there and I know it's not everybody's cup of tea and I just got to get the band to play it. And I don't know right. when we're first going to play it at a show because we don't rehearse enough to like introduce it yet. But maybe, maybe October, maybe October we'll, we'll get it because we have an hour and a half set to fill. So maybe we'll, we'll pull that baby out. Cool, man. Well, just a bridge to some personal stuff, but with the music in mind, what's the music scene like in San Francisco for those of us who 
don't or haven't lived there. And, I, you know, you can kind of bridge, if you want, that question into sort of your general experience there and thoughts about that city. Because, you know, you know that my best friend Smiley lives out there. I have a bunch of other friends that live out there. I love visiting. But I've never gone long enough to get a real sense. I don't think I've seen live music out there, actually. We're usually, like, yeah. hiking and, you know, we're going, we're going hiking or we're going to craft beer places, whatever. So what's your right. experience been like musically and otherwise? Great question. The, the caveat I would say is it's not like I've been, you know, like hip, cool music guy, like out playing shows or like seeing tons of shows like my whole life as like a teen or like a, a 20 year old. So I'm, I'm going to put that caveat out there. Sure. Um, what I would say is I feel like there's more musically happening potentially in Oakland than in San Francisco. Right. Which I have um, heard. At least in terms of like rock music, I mean, it seems like it's easier to get gigs. It seems like venues are a little bit more conducive to live acts. Like one of the things I noticed in San Francisco is like, sure, like we'll have a band on a Wednesday or Saturday, like on Wednesday or Thursday, but no, we have DJs on Friday and Saturdays. It's like seriously, dude. Like I think that's fucking lame, dude. But mm-hmm. that's one of the things I noticed about San Francisco. Um, you also have to keep in mind that I just moved back here from New Orleans where there's, you know, there's always music in New Orleans, like always, always, always. And yes, like seeing a brass band all the time gets really old for me, but at least there's always music and like there's live music. Like going to see a DJ in New Orleans, like that would be like, I, I can't even imagine somebody like saying that. Like I think they'd be slapped. Like what the fuck are you talking about? Right. Um, so that's one thing I would say. What the, the thing that I find really hard here, and I don't know if this is probably true everywhere, but I think like they're trying to go play a show somewhere, and like they're always like the, the, the bottom line. It's not even about how good you are, or, like how good your band is, or what your band band even sounds like. It's how many people can you get through the door. Period. That's all right. that matters here. Right. And that might be everywhere, but to me, I'm like, dude, come on, man. And like, I went to a show. I, we played a show at a place I was really stoked to play. Like, it's part. Of, and I'm gonna throw this this organization in the bus and whatever but crush them this is uh something called oakland indie mayhem right oh god so they have like a i already hate it (laughs) right so like i'm trying to get our band to play at an awesome venue on a saturday i guess oakland indie mayhem is like sponsoring it and they're all about how many can you draw and i'm like you know like real talk like my friends don't come to shows because my friends kind of suck or like they're old or like whatever but like our band is good and we rock and like what i really want jesse is to just play at a venue where people come to like they're not like necessarily interested in like who's playing that night but like cool good bands come here and play music that's what i'm looking for and there are a few of those places here but there's not like a ton where in new orleans like you know i'm gonna go to this spot there's gonna be good music i'm going there to see music period right and so this place like they had us set up and then they like canceled us because they got like a bigger name to come or like they got a bigger draw and I'm like okay cool like we already had a plan for a month like thanks like fuck you man right and then they they had another side venue like the same like affiliation and this bar dude is packed man like packed like tons of like hip cool whatever folks in Oakland doing the thing right but the, the, the band plays upstairs right yep there's a DJ downstairs it's a Saturday night the bar makes zero effort to get folks upstairs. Like, right. zero. Like, it's packed downstairs. Almost to the point, it's like, dude, it's fucking too many people in here. Like, 
nobody goes upstairs. The bar doesn't help anybody get upstairs. And I'm like, man, fuck this place. I'm never coming back here. The venue itself would be super cool. Like, it's awesome upstairs. But, like, I that to me just left a really bad taste in my mouth. And, like, yes, I really want to play at some of these gigs, but I don't want to, like, suck the dick of the venue thing. I'm like, or, like, Oakland and you Mayhem. It's like, for me, I'm all about community and people. And, like, if you have to be about popularity or, like, how cool or how your draw, like, I want nothing to do with it. Like, I want zero to do with it. And it's actually led me to, I wanted to do, like, a guerrilla music festival with, like, the bands that I like and just be like, hey, we're playing music for the sake of playing music. Like, come out and just, like, play music for fun. Like, it's just fun, man. Like, it's fun and it's art. Like, it's art for art's sake, not for, you know, how many likes you get on Instagram or Facebook or, like, whatever's going down. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, music scenes are tough. I mean, the great thing about New York is that you can always find a scene if you look hard enough. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> my impression of San Francisco is that it's a combination of, you know, California, obviously, but there are some New York elements, and I would say there are some Philly elements, because it, it's really more laid back, you know, than New York, to say the least, and, you know, the, like, slightly indie scene, but it's not too over the top, and you got the crap beers and you got all these like alternative activities that's one thing i've always liked about san francisco because i live in philadelphia and i love it here i like those aspects but you know i don't think i could live there it's a little pretentious i'm not gonna lie and uh it it used to be super pretentious and and it's not that it's not anymore but san francisco has become teched out dude like it's become so wealthy like artists can't live in san francisco anymore it used to be super pretentious about how green are you, how progressive are you, like how interesting are you. Now it's just rich. It's really wealthy tech folk. It sucks, dude. Like San Francisco, I I can't believe I'm gonna say this. I think I prefer the pretension to this. Like it's it's like I don't even know if I'd want to be in San Francisco. It's like yeah, cool. I don't know. And it's also, I mean, you're, I mean, you, you know, you're from Colorado, but you're at least towards the West Coast. There's so many transplants from the East Coast, especially New York. Um, and it's like a lot of people trying to reinvent themselves. And, you know, I mean, more power to you. But, I mean, even my boy Smiley, who's from Boston, and, you know, both of us had our fill of New York after a couple of years. He ended up in D.C. after a while, which made him want to leave the East Coast even more. And he does love San Francisco, but he does acknowledge that there's a little bit of, I don't know, phoniness going on. Would you agree with oh, that? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. No, San Francisco's whack, man. I mean... I just feel it's not even like there's like I mean there used to be like the hipster problem in San Francisco like there's not even hipsters there anymore man like that that doesn't exist like it just feels like well I'm including Oakland by the way when I'm talking about this whole yeah like Oakland Oakland is definitely cooler like the hipsters are definitely in Oakland a little bit more yeah I mean I think the Bay Area I mean people aren't exceptionally warm and nice Um, right but when you find it you find it you know I mean it's it's something where yeah you know it's it, it can feel really phony and just like spread out and I think it's I think there's always the fear of missing out here like that's a big deal it always has been in the Bay Area like there might be something cooler going on and what's the coolest place you know where I can like take pictures of my phone and like say I was there um, right which well, well New, New York cool. has that same dynamic too of course yeah, yeah of course yeah but yeah dude like I mean I've I'm, I'm trying to make it last here but I mean definitely I thought New Orleans New Orleans is the best thing that ever happened to me because all the pretension I had that I used to live with in the Bay Area, it was like, dude, it does not matter. Like, chill out. Like, hey, you know what? You're a Republican douchebag, but I can drink a beer with you. Like, cool, man. Like, whatever. Like, relax. Like, you know, is your hamburger, do you know the cow it came from? No. Is that bad? Sure. Like, I can make the argument of like, yeah, like, that's not cool. There's a lot of issues. You know what? I'm going to eat this hamburger and I'm going to enjoy it. 
Right. It's okay. Like, it's okay. Like, oh. it's okay. I was definitely eating burgers and drinking good beer when I was out there. I'm not ashamed. That's the thing about Philly. I mean, you know, you can criticize a lot of small things about it, but the one thing Philly is not is pretentious. Um, <sighs> there are a lot of douchebags here because it's a finance city <laughs> and, and, and a law city. Um, and so there's a lot of kids who go out to bars like they're dressed to go out on a yacht. You know what I mean? Um, with the, 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 the uh, paprika shorts, the polo shirt, and the flip-flops. Uh, are you a sandal guy? Do you like wearing sandals? Oh, I definitely wear flip-flops, man. I you wear flip-flops? flip-flops. I just hate, I hate shoes. Like, I just yeah. I don't like wearing shoes. So, like, I definitely like flip-flops. But, I mean, yeah. it's, not the, it's not the wearing of the flip-flops that bother me, but when you combine it with the sailing uh, attire, uh, it's just, you know... You know, if if you're more like hippie in a good way, like you and I, you know, I, I love my sandals too. I I wear Tevas a lot as well, but or not Tevas, but they're like Tevas. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. But but so there's douchiness in Philly, but it's not pretentious. And even the like light indie scene here, which is the source of a lot of the music, which is part of the reason for me I don't love the music scene here. But even the you know even like hipsters, it's really toned back compared to hipsters in New York or even San Francisco. So I don't know. I, I just wanted a little insight. I mean, I hear about it from Smiley all the time. You know, I think he's slightly less critical than you, or it's possible he's just not you know telling me everything. But he does criticize a lot of stuff. So, uh, it, it, you know, it'll be interesting to see what you guys do. Um, so that's great. So, okay, well, let's push this forward and sort of head towards the final act. Now, in our previous conversation, and just to <laughs> let the Bizzlecast listeners know, um, Adam and I already did a full podcast, but we had some sound issues, but there's some great stuff in there. So I'm going to try and work some of that stuff in, especially we talked about camp and, and how weird and crazy and cool, you know, going to uh, co-ed summer camp as a high schooler, how amazing, but strange that was. Uh, we won't rehash that. I'll try and work that in towards the end as, as a little bonus track. So I, I, I know we talked about this last time, but now, you know, now you have more perspective. I, I want to hear about Game of Thrones. Anything else you want to talk about um, before we head towards the sort of entertainment, guilty pleasure stuff? No, sir. All right. So, you know, in our previous conversation, so <laughs> I'm always ripping Game of Thrones. And whether it's my podcast or to people, I don't get the appeal at all. And I'm a huge fantasy nerd. I still read fantasy. I've been reading fantasy for, you know, 25 years, basically since I was old enough to read. And I just don't find anything appealing about the show. I get that it's supposed to be dark fantasy, but you're just treating women horribly. There's a, a gratuitous rape. And not only gratuitous violence, but it's not even interesting violence. I mean, you have this huge budget and this, you know, supposedly epic world and storyline, but, you know, the worst battle or the worst fight in Lord of the Rings or whatever is better than anything I've seen in Game of Thrones. There's no one to root for, and the people you are rooting for are getting raped and tortured and so forth. So, you having watched all five seasons and having time to process it, defend Game of Thrones, crush it. Or take some third approach. Adam Dietz on Game of Thrones. Go. I really appreciated our dialogue about it because I think since you and I have talked about it and I think processed it, I don't want to watch it. I really agree. Like, I really feel like, I really feel it's become gratuitous flash, like, just, just to get buzz. Like, it's just a trend. It's just to be talked about. I mean, it feels a bit harsh, but I don't think it has intrinsic value in it. I don't think it's 
smart or good or um, pushing the envelope in any progressive way. And I don't want to watch it. I'm really with you. Like, I really don't want to watch it. And I feel like I don't want to use my energy in that way. And really, like, I mean, I think I was told, I was, you know, someone told me Game of Thrones was really um, entertaining were great and I started watching it. I think I was entertained. And I think the first two seasons were fun and there was entertainment. And I I like the first two seasons invested. for the record. I do like the first two seasons. Yeah. But at this point, like, you know, I think there was a degree I was in and now it's just like I yeah, like what what's like what is there to get from this? And I I feel more strongly about that. Like I I, I really do and I would say yes, like this is not this is not to me it feels kind of like a symptom of like a sick society that like this is what's popular like it's like this is not really cool like this is not okay and i i don't and it's not like the worst thing in the world but like it's not this is not highbrow art and so not that everything has to be but yeah it doesn't seem like something i want to invest my time or energy into anymore well what's 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 interesting to me is that you know forget the supposed fantasy setting I really think it's a medieval setting that they try and force fantasy onto, but that's a different story. However, from a structural standpoint, from a presentation standpoint, and from the sort of amoralness of the whole thing, has way more to do and is way more related to all the dark nihilistic police dramas out there than it does with any sort of fantasy. As you point, it points out it you know it represents how sick our society is it but the, the fact that people are embracing that sickness consciously or subconsciously um let me frame it this way were you ever into anything fantasy before watching game of thrones not really i mean no okay not not, not compared yeah i mean the, I, if, if star wars counts then like yes but not not more than that okay so can you explain to me because you know <laughs> I do have some friends that are into fantasy who will just watch Game of Thrones because it's all that's out there. That's even remotely in the orbit of fantasy. But I have so many friends, you know, that not only don't care about but actively dislike, you know, stuff like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, whatever. So why why this? Why now? Why now? are people into it? And this is what infuriates me is that people think they're like an expert on dragons and stuff. And, you know, nerd alert. I'm I'm not, I'm going to own it. I've been reading about dragons for 25 years and not just in fantasy, but I'm really into the history of folktales and being a Tolkien nut, you know, he's the one that created all this shit, but they go the exact opposite of Tolkien from, from a sort of, um, you know, story, character, uh, spirit sense, and yet steal a lot of those same tropes. And that really kills me. So why, why now are, are people all of a sudden into dragons and knights and swords? Well, I would say that there's, historically, I mean, it's like, I remember being a kid, like, I mean, kings and queens, like, that's exciting. Like, castles, I think, like, swords, like, I think that stuff is interesting, and people have been interested in that. I do agree, like, the fantasy element of it, and where, where that goes, I think that, that, that can really, people go divergent paths on that. I think there is a fascination with like the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. I'm also fascinated with dragons in so much that I've always thought it cool like that the Japanese have dragons or like Asian cultures have dragons and then like also you have I think the English, the islands, the, that European region also has dragons which I find fascinating. Like, I'm very curious sure. if, there's, if there's something bigger there. Uh, well, well it's, it's, it's the serpent thing. I, I think... You know, yeah, there's some debate about we, whether we should really group European dragons with, with East Asian dragons, but whatever. That's Fair enough, and I appreciate that, because I, I don't know enough, but that would, I think that 
that's a, that's a worthy dialogue because it's it's interesting. Like that that's more interesting to me than any of that. But yeah, I don't I don't know. Like I think I think it's definitely like it's popular. Like people it's why for, well, why I I mean I mean my roommate watches that shit on Bravo where they're like the different housewives of like you know L.A. Persians or like housewives of Atlanta and like. That that shit's popular, I have I can't possibly comprehend it. I don't get it. Like I don't know. Interesting. And so is it possible that this is actually related to reality TV in a weird way? That's that's fascinating. Maybe, maybe. I mean, right? Because you're seeing people do like disgusting, stupid, crazy shit, and it's just like, yeah. I mean, I think there's like a there's like a voyeuristic like it's almost like porn, right? It's like what. Like, oh, this it's is definitely gross, and it's just like, like, oh, I can't believe that happened. Like, oh my god, like, I can't believe she said that about her. Like, like the reality TV, like people getting just like ridiculously wasted and doing stupid shit, like stupid people doing stupid shit, and that that's popular. And that we're investing money and resources and like time into it. Like, yeah, I guess Game of Thrones kind of feels like that. Like, why, why are we doing this? It's stupid. It's like stupid people. That's not very nice to say. Maybe we can edit. That. <laughs> all right well i will I, I won't belabor the point i mean i there's so many reasons i dislike it i mean the pornographic thing the way women are treated it, it, even if you argue that well this is how women were treated in the middle ages they're clearly making it pornographic in areas like you could hint at a rape occasionally without showing it you know it, it's just tasteless there's no one really to root for but even the characters that you can maybe root for, or, or that I did, like Arya Stark or Khaleesi in the early seasons, there, you know, Khaleesi's on an island for five years. She doesn't have any contact with the rest of the the people. You know, Arya's just on the run the whole time. Peter Dinklage is really the only thing that holds that show together, as far as I can tell. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And uh, you know, but my biggest problem is that it's boring because be like, oh, yeah, it's it great. Boring. It'd be like, oh, it's great. Di- it's not great dialogue. It's just plotting. This is my whole thing. People plotting against plotting, and they're plotting, and other people are plotting. I mean, they're just plotting, plotting, plotting. And when you do get a little taste of action, it's horribly executed. I mean, the show Vikings, which is getting almost as good, well, it's not quite at the level of ratings, but their budget is as big on the History Channel. The three seasons, I mean, there's like at least. 10 to 12, you know, fight stuff going on in Vikings that is so cinematic it could be in a movie. There, there's not one battle in five seasons of Game of Thrones that I would put on film. Not one. And, and uh, to be fair, I, I, I've cherry-picked since sort of the end of season three. I didn't see a lot of four. I saw a little bit of five just because, you know, again, you know, there's not much else out there. And so, yeah, it, it's pretty disturbing what it says about our society. And, uh um, you know, I just did. <laughs> I just did about sixteen hours of Lord of the Rings podcasts a little while ago. I, you know, I did a, a three hour talk about the whole movie series and the books with my buddy Adam Tuck, who is equally as much of a Tolkien nerd. And then I did full length commentaries on all three Lord of the Rings movies, the extended editions. It was like three and a half hours <laughs> to four a piece. So it, we're talking like fifteen hours of Tolkien. I loved it. And I, I was ripping on Game of Thrones. I, I restrained myself somewhat because I didn't want to be about something other than the movie. But, you know, there's certain characters in there. You have empowered women in Lord of the Rings, even in the original book, you know. And uh, I, I don't know. It's very frustrating. So, um, so let's move on from Game of Thrones. I have a couple more quick hits, and then we'll do a wrap-up. Um, I want to mention one thing. Oh, yeah, I want to say... There's one thing I want to throw out about True Detective, and so, you know, I was really, I, I mean, again, season one I, I thought was great, 
season two, I thought started off really strong and it was really dark, like really dark. And, and I liked it because I think it, it's, it, I, I like shows and I really like Breaking Bad because it played with morality. Like what is good? What is bad? And I don't know that Game of Thrones does that, but I felt like True Detective also was like just really showing like these conflicted characters and pain that just like struggle that that's part of life. And, right. and it was, it was interesting to me. But season two ended really poorly. Like it really just got boring and not interesting and just, you know, and it's, again, it's hard to write, but I think here's what I want to say. And it was really, I started reading a little bit more and then there's this uh, interesting claim out there that much of the interesting, like waxing poetic of season one was, you ready for it? Plagiarized. And that's just like, mm. oh man. And I was like, you know what? Okay. Like that kind of. Wait, 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 hold on. What, what was plagiarized? So the Rusty Cole character, the the Matthew McConaughey character, uh-huh. um, he like he'll like philosophize and just like you know about the world and stuff. right. And that's and the only thing. Man. That's the one thing I liked about the show, even though I didn't watch the full season. I did like that. Right. Part. And so in theory, that's all plagiarized. That's the claim. From what? Um, there's an article. I will send it to you. But um, there's an article. There's a there's a philosopher that has written recent books. But like I guess his the main literary critic in the who's the philosopher. Sense, I think so. I think so. A writer. I mean, just like a modern. Writer. No, who, who, who are they? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I I don't. I will send it to you. But the the main literary critic of that person, and not like a critic, like critique, but like true literary criticism, like in in set evaluating or analyzing what people write, has said this is completely plagi- it's completely plagiarized from this this author, and that was really interesting. And I think this, the season two, like, there was a big break. Like, the, the two creators of season one, like, they didn't create season two together. And so I think that show, I can't, I can't, you can't make a compelling argument for me to watch season three now. Now knowing that there was a briar beef, that maybe the best parts of season one were plagiarized, and then season two just wasn't hmm. that good. It's like, well, that show's out too. Like, I'm not, not but again either. It's it's nihilistic. There's no real moral center to that show. And you know, I don't need superheroes and everything. I don't need their always to Look, let's put it this way. I like dark shows, but I like shows that are dark because of the scenarios, not because all the characters are amoral or worse. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think it's I think it's a little bit more like I think with Breaking Bad for me is the best example of it where it's like I could relate with Walter White. It's like there's things he's doing. It's like Oh yeah, that show that show had a moral center. That show had a moral center for sure. If he did, if he did some of the shit he did in season five, like in the first season, like whoa! But we got we built there, we got there, and it made sense. Like it's like okay, like do I think I would do that? I don't know, but I could see myself doing it. Like or I can I can see where Walt is going. Like it makes sense. Like it's it's relatable. Like it's it's not awesome but like it's relatable like i get it and it's real and like that's what i loved about that show is like we got there and like it it felt possible felt plausible and yeah i think these other things where there's like all these amoral characters for the sake of being it doesn't feel tangible that doesn't feel right and where it is kind of like the pornographic like real housewives like well there isn't well there probably is porn the real housewives but um, anyway it's where game of thrones work right like it's just like this is just for the sake of like just being like out there and just putting it out there like it's gross right right well and and, yes um breaking bad is a perfect example of a show that has a heart and a moral center as dark as it gets 
and with the moral ambiguity, uh, ethical ambiguity of the characters, the difference is even Walt White, who does become a monster, there's at least a part of him where it's coming from a good place, you know, right. or, or where he thinks right. it's from a good place. The other example right. I use a lot is Battlestar Galactica, the new Battlestar Galactica, mm. which is an incredibly mm. dark scenario of the genocide of the entire species with 50,000 people left being chased by killer robots. But, you know, at, at many points... All the characters, even the most wise and old and experienced, break because of the pressure and because of flaws in their characters. Now, some bounce back, some don't. There is moral ambiguity, but at least it's coming from a good place. And you know, and you have to have your villains like that too. You have to have non-one-dimensional villains, and it's never coming from a good place in Game of Thrones for most of the characters. Even Peter Dinklage is a pragmatist, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and Khaleesi's a pragmatist. Um, that's why I love Arya. She's the one truly like good character, as far as I can tell, that's still alive. And so, yeah, Breaking Bad's a great example of that. And that's why I can't watch a lot of these dark TV shows. I, I just, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the first few episodes of season one of True Detective, but it was so dark, slow, m- you know, <laughs> morally empty. And, and what's great about Breaking Bad is it conveys, thing, it conveys notions of right and wrong and everything in between without ever being preachy. I mean, that's the whole point, right? And so, uh, yeah, I, I just I wish there were more shows like that, and that's why I, I don't watch that much TV. And I need to really get invested in a show. And the only way that I'm going to be invested in shows with three, four, five, six, seven seasons is if I can get on board with the characters. You know, Jesse Pinkman on Breaking Bad, another great example. You yeah. know, he's he's really annoying for lar- large stretches, but the, between the performance and the you know pure three-dimensionality of, of, of his character and his motivations, he's so compelling. Um, Absolutely. And then obviously Absolutely. In, the, in the later seasons, you start really siding with him as, as, as he starts becoming a, a truly good person or trying to, and while it really just becomes all-out monster. But what's brilliant about Breaking Bad, and we'll move on to me, is that Walter is fully aware of his becoming a monster the whole time. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And he embraces it, you know? I mean... Just to bring in some nerd stuff, in Avengers Age of Ultron, which isn't being released on DVD till October. You know I've been doing a lot of audio commentaries, but I got a screening copy from someone because I, I just like, nice. I, can't, I can't wait till October. And so I did a commentary for it. And, you know, it, it, the theme of being a monster is, is very central to that and how we all have that monstrous side to us and about, right. you know, it's not, just right. about, it's not just about winning. It's about, you know... Do we deserve to win? I mean, the Edward James Olmos, who's the the lead character in Battlestar, the Admiral, has a great line in the pilot episode where he says, "You know, it's not enough to survive. We must be worthy of survival." In other words, what are we fighting for? In Game of Thrones, right. they're right. not fighting for anything except themselves. You know, and I don't know how that's inspiring. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just a softy, but the life is so depressing and oppressive and dark already. You know, it's like I can't watch four hours of TV a night of, of people being nihilistic and immoral and and not being able to relate to them. So, uh, anything else on TV or movies you, that you want to give a shout out uh, from from this year or the recent past that you really like? You in the Homeland? I'm not. And, okay. Um, no, I will say um, that I just read for the first time Slaughterhouse Five and loved it. I really liked mm. it. That's my type of fiction, and I think that, that that was a lot of fun for me. That was a really I enjoyed that, and one of the things I really liked about Slaughterhouse Five, um, this might tie some nice things together, was I work with with um, seniors, 
and you know I work with seniors and there there's dementia there's um, Alzheimer's and one of the things I'm really fascinated about is how these folks will like go back in time or like they kind of they kind of revert back to like their childish years or like their late their early years where like they think caregivers are their mom or they're looking mm-hmm. for their mother and one time I just had this thought like you know we we the scientific community um, us all knowing um, humans will say oh like that's their brain deteriorating or like their brain's not working properly like that's not real and I wanna I would I just wanted to like entertain for a minute. And this is before I read Slaughterhouse Five, but I just wanted to entertain for a minute. Like, well, what if they? What if that is real? Like, what if they're actually like on the? Maybe they're straddling like life and death, and maybe mm-hmm. they're in a different plane of existence, or maybe there is like a temporal dimension that we're not aware of. And right. you know, what if that was? What if they're in a different place and like they've they've matured, for lack of a better word, like to a different different realm? And so I kind of liked liked that um, thought of mine. Thoughts, but um, that and then I really then I read Slaughterhouse Five, where like time was, you know, time. There's no such thing as like time, or like whether that that's there's not a linear time anyway. And I really enjoyed that. And I thought that was yeah. a really fun way to think of thought and life. And, and uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's a great example. And, and uh, Vonnegut in that book in particular is a perfect example of a very dark scenario where there's still something positive you can take out of it. Mm-hmm. And all mm-hmm. his works are like mm-hmm. that. Plus, you add, you add the magical realism or just straight up sci-fi. And stuff. I, yeah, it, dude, if, have you read his early stuff? Oh my god, it's so trippy. No, I, I'm, I'm. That was really my introduction. I don't know why I hadn't, but I I'm definitely in. And so I'm forward to it. So his 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 first two books um, are. <laughs> you know, must reads. They're so crazy. My favorite is the first one called Sirens of Titan. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't even describe it because it's such a bizarre science fiction thing going on. Uh, probably his most loved outside of Slaughterhouse Five is his second book, Cat's Cradle, uh, which mm-hmm. which is good. And then there's Breakfast of Champions. So yeah, man, he's Vonnie gets great. So good. Um, Cool, man. Uh, oh, have you seen uh, Straight Outta Compton yet? I'm seeing that with my dad tomorrow. I have not. I don't know. I want to see it. Like, I really wanted to see the James Brown movie. I really wanted to see the Jimi oh. Hendrix movie. Oh, dude, James and... Brown movie is awesome. Chadwick Boseman. Yeah, like... Who, by the I, way, I, is playing the Black Panther in the Marvel movies, which is the coolest most like pan african empowerment you know uh, comic book character otherwise uh man he's gonna kill it and he plays jackie robinson in 42 is great in that plays yes. the exact opposite yeah and just to be honest like i'm not a big movie watcher like i don't really go to the movies that much i mean and i think with straight out of content like i feel like i could get away watching that at home or like i think in the avengers like i'm gonna go see on the big screen like it's like i'm sure. gonna spend the money go see it on the big screen like straight out of content like i mean if it's the zeitgeist like i mean i don't know i guess i don't feel I don't know, like, I'm always behind the times and stuff like that. Like, I'll see it when I see it. Like, it'll happen and I'll see it. I don't know that I need to enter the dialogue about it, but anyway, yeah. I will see it. It'll happen. No, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And then there's movies in the middle, like Birdman, which I freaking love. I saw twice in the theater. Oh, I loved Birdman. That's one of the, the best movies I've seen in a long time. But I know people hate that movie, and, like, I get it. It's like, I loved it because it was awesome, and it was, that's the type of fiction I adore. See, no, I, I yeah, here's what I'll say. I get the supposed argument why people don't like it, that it's somehow pretentious. It, but the whole movie's making fun of pretension. And so Absolutely. of all the criticisms to call it pretentious and that's why you don't like it is absurd. 
absurd. And I'm not one to tell people to like something or not, but Birdman is so clearly hilarious and brilliant and the zeitgeist in, a, in the best way possible. You, you know, the acting is amazing. The cinematography, obviously, won Best Picture. At first time, the Academy got that, that right in a while. Yeah, for, I, I was actually shocked. It's the best movie I've seen in a long time. Like, long time. Great, but I get, I get why people wouldn't like it just because it's, like, fucking out there. If you can't suspend your imagination or, like, I don't know. I feel like it's not a straightforward movie like the Avengers. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay, like it's 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 a great movie. It's wonderful. Yeah, I, the only other movie in in that category of just really good movies uh, in the last couple of years that that are close to me um, is Her. Yeah, I wasn't crazy about that. Really? Yeah, it's okay. It was I okay. loved her. I, mean, I loved it. I, I yeah, love what Phoenix. It was good. Like, I appreciate it. It just it didn't have that same. I think it's good. It's just that's I, I don't know. I could take it. Away. Sure. Fair enough. Cool, man. All right. Well, uh, I guess we'll we'll wrap this baby up. I, I can't believe we got all of this in in just over an hour. This is amazing. Well done, sir. Thank you for being on. And please give me the full plug of everything here. Websites, Facebook, whatever. Drop it. Cool. Okay. So please check out Bones Yard. That's all one word. Dot org. And that is the main website for the Bones Musical Project. There will be gigs on there, music is on there. And you know, an important link on there, there's a, a Partners in Art link, and that includes the other musicians, sound producers. It includes the art done by my, by my mom, who did all the album art. Um, it includes links to the photographs. It includes links even to my cousin who, did, I, who does a clothing line and I wore the clothes on there. so it's just and that's kind of what I I think a big part of what this is about for me is just like sharing creation with people and like encouraging people to create and it's we all have a creative spark and I really believe that and so you know create do it like be out there like and let's share in it and again not worry about how cool it is or how good it is like create and just go for it and that's that's kind of what that's about so that I want to plug that September I have a gig a uh, solo gig in San Francisco at the Poor House, and then a gig mm. the next night at El Rio in San Francisco, and that's a great venue, and I just hope if any Bay Area folk are listening, come on out. That should be really fun. And we need the support. We need people out there to come see us. We don't like playing to no show, to no audience. Um, and then we're going to play at Oktoberfest, which is a local Oktoberfest, and that should be super fun. We'll be in the tent, and we get beer, like beer compensation, even a little bit of cash, which is <laughs> awesome. And then in theory, we're going to do like a little road trip, maybe up to Mendocino and play some gigs up there. And I love it up there. It's one of my favorite parts of the country. Um, So really looking forward to that. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, people, get off your asses and see some good music. Seriously. Um, <laughs> all right, man. Well, this was this was fun again. Definitely going to have to have you back on. All right. Adam Dietz, musician. Urban philosopher, overall cool guy. Anything else you want to say to the Bizzlecast audience? I'm very appreciative of Jesse. I, I like what you do. It's 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 really a joy talking to you after all these years. And um, thank you for having me on. The feeling is mutual, my friend. So thanks, Bizzlecast listeners. Hope you enjoyed it, and we are out. And free, Lady Dupree. I dig the way that you sing, gritty and melancholy. I 
cowgirls got soul and pinch of punk some rock and roll hollow deep into your bones honest like this water and hole Much choice harmonize on choruses we oh how I would rejoice may I have this dance a swing and hit for romance I like the way that you move Come on, honey, and give us a chance. Let's build us a home out where all the muscle cars roam. Palm trees in a yard for the Dow Camaro blue tan and it's chrome Lonely and free 